Well, good morning. Welcome to Cooks Hill this morning. Uh, I don't know if you know this, but it is Volunteer Appreciation Week, which means that if you are a volunteer, we appreciate you. We made a week for you. Actually, the U.S. did, but we're taking it on and celebrating. So if you volunteer in any capacity at Cooks Hill, would you please stand up? Jump to your feet if you volunteer in any capacity at Cooks Hill. Wow, thank you guys so much. Let's uh, give it up for these guys. Um, before you go today, if you are a volunteer or if you want to sign up to be a volunteer, go to the Welcome Center in the back. There is a gift for you, and it is a gift that you will not want to miss, okay? So you have to go back there, and you have to get it, or you will never know how much we appreciate you. All right, so um, there is a, I think I, I put a picture in the slides maybe. I'm not 100% sure. Um, we would like to, this summer, we've been dreaming up a little bit about having a uh, kids camp. So like a one-day summer blast that is uh, for kids preschool through uh, fifth grade. And um, we've got some fun things we want to do with this, but we kind of have to gauge before we go forward with this if we have enough people um, to pull it off. Because as um, John mentioned during the announcements, we have gymnastics, which, um, Darlene, raise your hand. Darlene, there you go. Darlene is our resident gymnastics pro. Um, she teaches a gymnastics class um, here on Sunday mornings as an outreach to families. And um, we have a ton of families. And as soon as the class sign-up goes live online, within like 30 seconds, there will be like 30 sign-ups filling every single spot. And then people messaging for like hours being like, did I miss it? Did I miss it? Um, and so it's a really cool thing that's happening. But we have gymnastics and then we have open gym, which is like where we open this space up with bounce houses and climbing materials and um, play spaces and ball pits and like all of the above. And we have daycare. So if we're going to do a kids camp on um, one day on the weekend, um, it would require a lot of people because Cooksville is connected to over 650 kids. And that's not to say that they would all show up, but that means that our invite pool to a camp is really large. Um, and so we need to know if it's even possible. And so what I need you to do is if you can serve in any capacity, whether that's sitting at the registration table, whether that's filling out um, information for people and name tags, or whether it's being a group leader or a group assistant or working in the kitchen, um, whatever capacity you could possibly serve um, in that event, put your name on a sign-up sheet at the Welcome Center so that we can kind of gauge like how possible this event would be for Cook to hopefully reach more of the community and our neighbors as well. Um, so um, do that for me before you leave um, in the back. All right. Well, we launched the Beatitudes last week. And this week we're continuing in the same series, the Beatitudes. And the series is all about shifting perspective from what the world wants and what we might naturally think we should do to a kingdom perspective, a Jesus perspective. 
And we're talking about what that looks like. And uh, for the sake of review, we're going to go over the Beatitudes really quickly. The Beatitudes are a collection of statements said in what we know as the Sermon on the Mount. So a lot of us have heard of the Sermon on the Mount. The Beatitudes are in the Sermon on the Mount. And Matthew and Luke both have Beatitudes mentioned in the Sermon on the Mount. Some have more than others. The accounts are slightly different. And the Sermon on the Mount is where we get a lot of the popular statements from today. The idea of the golden rule, um, the idea of being salt and light, statements about not judging others, those come out of the Sermon on the Mount where we also find the Beatitudes. And the Beatitudes during the Sermon on the Mount was being directed both when Jesus was teaching it then but also now to us as a set of statements and stories targeting people who think that they're spiritually elite. So the original audience and the continued audience of this passage is for people who think that they are the most spiritually aware people out there, those who memorize scripture, the ones who know the law, they know all the rights, they know all the wrongs, they're aware of everything you should do and everything you should not do, and they are the top of their game. And so at the time that the Beatitudes were being spoken, the Pharisees were the primary people in that discussion. And they thought of themselves as the top of their spiritual game. They were number one on God's list, and they were sure he had a list, and they were at the top of it, which to them meant that they got to use their power, their wealth, and their status in God's eyes, which they thought that they had, to get others to follow the laws and punish the people who didn't do what they specifically told them that they needed to do. And so this set of statements particularly affects or is targeted towards people who have attitudes around power, wealth, and status, and then attach that to Jesus. So these statements of what it really means to inherit the kingdom of God were shocking and somewhat horrifying to the original audience. And in further review, we went over last week the word blessed and how the word blessed implies a current result of knowing Jesus, not a future state like if we do something, then we will receive X. It's not if you're a peacemaker, then you will have peace. It's more... Uh, it's because you're a peacemaker, you have the peace of God. It's a because, not an if. So instead of reading them as, if you are merciful, then you will have mercy, it's because you are merciful, then there is mercy. And so let's read through the Beatitudes this morning. Matthew chapter 5. Now when Jesus saw the crowds, he went up on a mountainside and sat down. Excuse me. His disciples came to him, and he began to teach them. He said, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called children of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you, and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad, because great is your reward in heaven. For in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. For today's beatitude, we're going to focus in on blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they 
will be filled. The language in this particular beatitude is often lost on us. And the primary reason for that is because the audience that would have been listening to this Sermon on the Mount at the time had experienced intense hunger and intense thirst. At some points in their life, they had experienced droughts and famines. They knew deeply what it meant to hunger and to thirst. And for most of us, we don't understand the level of hunger and thirst that come through drought and famine. Because most of us have not lived in that space. And so most of the present audience that Jesus is speaking to is deeply aware of what it means to hunger and to thirst after righteousness. They would have known that it meant to recklessly and intensely and very, very, very passionately search to fight with everything within you, to fight as if your life depended on it, because in reality, your life did depend on it for food and for water. And so to hunger and to thirst would have immediately been known as a passionate and sacrificial fight. A set of words that would have immediately evoked memories and attitudes and thoughts and a sense of desperation. And it's really important when we are reading through this particular beatitude, that we note that Jesus does not say, blessed are those who have achieved righteousness. This is really, really important. Because the idea that you are blessed when you are hungering and thirsting after righteousness allows room for the sinner. It allows room for the imperfections in our life. And the assumptions that while we mess up, we can still go towards a relationship with God. And so to hunger and thirst after righteousness would be to be in a relentless and costly pursuit of the relationship with Jesus. But to fully understand this beatitude, we also have to break down the word righteous. It says, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. We have to understand what it means to be righteous. The word righteous has an original meaning and definition in the theological dictionary of the New Testament that explains the word righteous in 51 completely packed pages. So um, for the next six hours, Um, we will be diving into what does the word righteous mean and how can we possibly unpack it? Uh, Because uh, the word righteous uh, in and of itself has been hotly talked about, widely debated, and the actual dictionary with definitions, and when you think dictionary with definitions, you think like two or three sentences, right? I mean, 51 pages of information. And so I tried to sum them up into less than six hours, you are welcome. Yes. Uh, So we're going to go over some points about the word righteous. Um, We are not going to go over 51 pages. I will not read them all to you. Uh, But Kenneth Bailey in his book, Jesus Through Middle Eastern Eyes, we spent a lot of time working through Middle Eastern lifestyle and thought processes, and we're going back to that Middle Eastern influence in this particular definition. And so there's kind of four main components 
and righteousness over all in all 51 pages sort of boils down to what we would say relational in nature. So the word righteous is relational in nature. So remember that as we go through. The first thing about righteousness and its definition is that it is in reference throughout Scripture to the mighty acts of God. So it's used throughout Scripture in the context of the mighty acts of God. The second thing is that righteousness is in reference to someone being declared righteous. So this is not in the terms of actions, like declared perfect or anything like that, but in terms of relationship. So declared right with God due to relationship. Otherwise, this beatitude would read, those who are striving to become perfect are blessed. Instead, it says those who are in right relationship with God. The third thing is that righteousness as a human response to the verdict of innocent um, or righteous. Sort of an understanding of the gift of God's salvation and how he has made us right in his eyes. Not something we do, but our relationship with him that reflects that we understand the gift that he has given us through his son's death on the cross. This overlaps with the form of righteous when it comes to justice. So that idea that we think of in the courtroom or that idea that we think of in terms of the court of law in the justice sphere. Micah 6.8 talks about this when it says, He has shown you, O mortal, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you? To act justly and to love mercy and to walk humbly with your God. And the last definition of righteousness <clears throat> excuse me, <clears throat> is referred to as in relation to someone's state of peace. So this is one of the kind of four major components of the word righteous, and that's a peace that comes with being in relationship with God. Isaiah 32, 16 through 20 says, The Lord's justice will dwell in the desert. His righteousness lives in the fertile field. The fruit of that righteousness will be peace. Its effect will be quietness and confidence forever. So if righteousness is a state of understanding how God has saved us by his mighty actions, and our drive towards our relationship with him gives us peace, then let's look back at our beatitude and we'll read it again. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness for they will be filled. That word filled is also the same word as satisfied in some context in the way that you read it. And there was an idea at this time, and the Pharisees knew that there was this context where as a Pharisee, you were known as the person who followed the law, the person who abided by every single thing that you should or shouldn't do. And then you wrote into effect for your entire community what they should and shouldn't do, and then you enforced it. And so when someone wasn't doing what they should or shouldn't do, you got to enforce a punishment, and they got looked down on, and they weren't as worthy. And so for the Pharisees, they were the top of the spiritual game. They knew that 
God wanted them uh, to be the top of it all. And that's what they thought. They believed that God had some sort of place in heaven for them that was better than anybody else. They were just the most, in their eyes, righteous people ever. And so in their mind, they would be satisfied. But they would be satisfied by the community's response to them and God's appreciation for them. And so their understanding of being satisfied or being filled would immediately go to, well, yes, because I am, I am, I am, I am known for this, I am on top of this, I am in charge of this, I know all of these scriptures, yada, yada, yada. And so you end up in this space where Jesus says they will be satisfied, and this is attached to the word righteous for a reason. Because if righteous is in relationship to God, then there are no rules. There are no lists of shoulds and shouldn'ts that make you righteous or not. There's simply a relationship with God. And so by attaching the word filled or satisfied to the word righteous, the statement exists that you are made right in relationship with God, and therefore you will be satisfied by God. Which would not have been how the Pharisees would have understood this story. They would have understood it to say, uh, I'm on, on top, I'm in charge, everybody listens to me, and now because I am so great, the people and God owe me this status, this power, and this wealth. And that is in no way what this context is about at all. To be righteous, to be in relationship with God. And so all of these definitions, one through four, and all 51 pages, have all of the context where righteous is used. But oftentimes in the church, we simply settle it down to the word made right with God. That's super common because taking 51 pages and turning it into two words is really hard to do. And so there's no way that any two or three words can really encompass all of what it means to be righteous. And so the nature of the word is what we're settling in on. The nature of the uh, phrase or the idea that being made right with God is to be in relationship with God. And so when it says, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be satisfied. Blessed are those who are in relationship with God, for they are satisfied by God. Not blessed are those who strive for perfection. And I know for some, that is the idea behind how we live our uh, relationship with God out. We think that as long as we get everything right, that maybe God will honor us or save us a seat in heaven. Or, and, and for some, that is more of a thought process than others. Some of us are naturally driven towards perfection. Is a part of who we are, and some of us are not. If you have any question about what I am, ask the detail people on our staff. 
they will tell you that my natural drive is not perfection when it comes to details. Uh, and so there is a space where our personalities will lend to how we read this scripture. And if you are a perfectionist in nature, and details are your thing, and getting things right is how you function, this will read a little bit differently to you. And so you have to be aware of how your personality plays into reading this scripture. And if that is you and perfection is your tendency and you do sort of end up leaning towards getting everything 100% correct 100% of the time, then I want you to extra hear the words that this does not say, blessed are those who strive for perfection. It does not say that. And no matter how much you mess up, no matter how many details you forget, thank you, Jesus, no matter how much you cannot get things perfect in any situation, place, or space, there is still room for you in this particular beatitude and the rest of the world and with Jesus. But you know what I'm saying. And so in the context of how you read this, factor in who you are and what Jesus might be telling you. It does not say, blessed are those who strive for perfection. It says you are already blessed if you are in relationship with Jesus. You are already blessed if you are in relationship with Jesus. You will be satisfied when you are in relationship with Jesus. You will have everything that you need when you are in relationship with Jesus. Nowhere in there does it say that if you do everything right, you will be satisfied. But simply, if you are in relationship with Jesus, if you are hungering and thirsting after Jesus. So what does all of this mean? How do we go out from here and think about the context of hungering and thirsting after righteousness? And hunger and thirst being those words of like that sort of insatiable and intense and sort of really undeniable, costly, sacrificial space where we want to be in relationship with Jesus at such a core level that it impacts everything about who we are and what we're thinking and what we're doing. And, and there's really no way to want to be in relationship with someone so much that it mirrors hunger and thirst without falling in love. And so maybe today for you, the reminder is that this is not about striving for perfection. This is about falling in love with Jesus. And to hunger and to thirst after righteousness is to desire a relationship with Jesus and to go after it. And we can wish that we fall in love with Jesus. We can hope that we fall in love with Jesus. Uh, we can want to fall in love with Jesus. But to actually begin to fall in love with Jesus, we have to get to know him. And we have to get a sense for who he is. Because his mighty acts and his wondrous love are what will in turn help us fall in love with him. 
And so there's some really simple ways. Now, I have to preface this list as we close this morning with if you are a perfectionist, don't take notes on this. Don't take notes on this, okay? Because chances are you're on overdrive doing all of these things already, trying to get closer to Jesus. And so if you are here this morning and you would originally read this text as blessed are those who strive for perfection, just look around, fill out your connect card, uh, write down your prayer requests, um, get your gift in the back, um, just take a minute, um, and this is for those of you who are saying, I want to be in relationship with Jesus. I want to fall in love with Jesus, but I just don't know where to start, okay? This is not to say these are the things you have to do on a certain schedule, in a certain order, at a certain amount of hours per week in order to fulfill the strive for perfection to the best of your ability. That is not what this is. It is a place to start when you're saying, I want to fall in love with Jesus. I want to fall in love with the creator. I want to fall in love with the one who died to save me. So the first thing you can do is read the word. And read the stories of what Jesus did. And in every story, ask yourself the question, what would it look like if this happened in my life? The second thing is to pray. Even if it starts out awkward, uh, Jesus knows the whole dictionary. Uh, he knows all the words. And so even if you put them together in a jumbled up order, he is a um, word scrambler pro. And so he will be able to figure out what you are saying. He knows your heart. And so to uh, fall in love with Jesus is to begin that conversation. Even if at the start it feels like you might be talking to a wall or a ceiling and you're not really sure where the prayers are going. The third thing is to get in a group of people who are also passionately looking for a relationship with Jesus. Because there's not a lot better than together diving deeper into relationship with God. The fourth thing is listen. Listen to people tell the stories of Jesus. The fifth thing is to serve others. Jesus served his entire ministry. He made others 100% of the focus. And he went out there and he served and served and served. And if you serve, you get to do that with Jesus. And so what I would encourage you to do if you are already serving is to go into serving in relationship with God. Because sometimes we can get to a space where we just show up and we open the door and we say good morning or we show up and we click some buttons, we get through whatever it is that we're doing or we kind of have a chore job where maybe doing a camera or a screen or emptying the garbage isn't your favorite thing ever. Because most people don't say, I think God called me to vacuum, right? Like people don't go into life necessarily saying those things, but everyone understands Stands that there's a space where God has called us to be a part of the community and be a part of our church family. And so whatever it is that you are doing, go into that space with Jesus. To pray first, to say, okay, Jesus, open my eyes to what you might be trying to show me in this space. 
Lord, help me to see people the way that you would see them. Lord, remind me if I'm doing the motions and not necessarily seeking to see people's lives transformed with what's going on. Go into serving in relationship with Jesus. Now, again, if you are a perfectionist, this is not a list of put them on the calendar and do them 24-7 or figure out how to go to every single small group. There's like 15 of them, which means you'd have to go to two per day. Um, and that would be a lot, and it would be very hard, and a lot of them are at the same time, so you'd also have to duplicate yourself, which would be a little bit challenging to do. And so don't take this list to a perfectionist extreme, but simply say, where in my life can I go after Jesus? Where in my life can I go a little bit deeper in relationship with Jesus? Where can I make focus on the relationship that I have with Jesus?